You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Father, uh, thank you for the ability to worship you, um, to approach you, um, that which is inconceivable has become real to us. And we can't thank you enough for that and that gift. And we pray this morning that we honor that in our words and in carrying uh, this word, this conviction into the week ahead. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Hey, Charlie, come on in. Um, We're just getting wound up here. Um, So this is the last in what's been a what seems like a 20-part series on church history but it's really just been a few and we've uh, uh, navigated a good part of the fall with this material and it's it it's been a challenge it's been fun for me just to try to how do you say things concisely in the in the time that we have and in of such importance you know of such weight of such gravity and uh uh, at the same time, you know, how do you say it in such a way or, or get us to reflect in such a way? Why does it matter for today? Right. Because the the, the trick here with studying history at any time is, well, what's what does history actually do for us? You know, if it's not the Bible and it's not a sermon and it's not an, what's the application of history, so to speak. And that <clears throat> may be kind of where we're going today is the application of history. If history does anything for us, and, and including church history, please come in and take. take um, it gives us analogies to work with. It takes us out of the tyranny of the moment, the present, and it gives us analogies and tools to to reassemble, to kind of look at ourselves. Uh, and that's part of why young people very rarely like history they think it's something you just got to do every now and then you find one who one or two who's interested and and, uh you know and passionate and you find a lot of people say well i really like history but you know uh, when they're 19 i got to make a living you know kind of thing and that's that's true too you got to eat um but the thing about history including church history and christian thought is it, it gets us out of our echo chamber, and we can see ourselves uh, with with a kind of mirror or a kind of conversation that we need. And that that's where I want to push us today after this survey. So that that's kind of what I had in mind for us. And then hopefully, and I've lied every time and said, let's have time for questions um, and conversation. Uh, and we I never made it. Um, very rarely, huh? But I, I want to try to do that uh, for us today. To do to get there, to get there, I want to just kind of survey where we've where we've been. Um, first, we started with the early church, and again, you think about it. We could spend a lifetime studying the early church, the languages, the culture, the issues involved. But for to, for our purposes, I think we can disseminate. We can bring it down to just a handful of questions that we need to understand. The early church was grappling with the question of, are we Jewish? And why we're not Jewish? 
This was an enormous conversation. And it starts with Paul, our first theologian, really. It starts in the book of Acts. Who are we? How are we related to the question of the, the Old Testament or the law? What is our relationship to Judaism? Second category out of the early church is Greek philosophy. The great, big philosophical questions, the cultural issues that came out of Greece. I know we don't get up every day and say, well, you know, Plato thought or Aristotle thought. I get that. And yet, uh, if you were an educated person in the Hellenistic world, the ideas of these philosophers would have been available to you. You would have understood them. You would have thought in categories of natural law or eternal forms or all these sort of things. In Romans 9, we hear Paul tell us that, our natural selves are drawn to the Greeks sort of perfected in beautiful and elegant ways. Um, but it's not revelation, and Christianity is not philosophy. It's something else. It's a different kind of message. And then this other weird category of Gnosticism, which is just think spiritualism. You know, various, think New Age, think uh, going you know, the bookstore shelves on, on spirituality. That's Gnosticism. You go in, you can pick, you... It's a it, it's the grocery store menu of, I have uh, I pay study with me and I'll tell you the secrets of life, you know. And it's like well, okay, um, Gnosticism is Christianity just another one of these things that's offering us a kind of secret trained knowledge of good and how we understand good and evil and such. And and the issues that then emerge over several hundred years are how do we know what Scripture is? How do we identify it? The church begins to, uh, to, to challenge various, uh, what they call it heresies. Uh, and they had to do that out of a, a, a template of authority. So the scriptures begin to come together in the, the circulation of the ancient world. The person and work of Christ. Is Christ just a super teacher? Is he just a super moral guy? We can follow like a really good example in life, you know? Um, what is Christ? What is this Jesus exactly? And then the great and enduring question of freedom, uh, human freedom and grace and salvation. Work themselves out <coughs> and really lay the concrete, lay the base of what becomes the rest of the church. And I hope you'll see at each one of these turns, all of these things still matter. We don't escape any of them. Every profession we make, every time we say the Nicene Creed, every time we stand and confess, we're doing it in unison with this, with this, this history, this background. And it's still contested, in the, both by believers and unbelievers. So we, we moved on to the medieval church, um, and there we talked about the rise of the papacy as an institution, as a force in the Western world, and the conflicts that emerged between Northern Europe and, and the Italian states and the papacy. We talked about um, how the, the, the papacy was able to then expand its uh, reach into the Western world and Western institutions after this revolution in the 1000s. We talked about sacramental theology and how the church developed various Christologies and and ideas of, of, of the sacraments and, and the church um, with various figures like Pete, uh, Peter Lombard, um, Anselm, for example. 
And then we mentioned scholasticism as a way of thinking, a way of a method, a method that developed in the Middle Ages for understanding Scripture systematically. And out of these issues came questions of ecclesiastical authority. How much power should Rome actually have? How much should local bishops have? Out of these questions, out of these issues came questions about justification and more refinement about the question of justification. How is grace communicated? Is it through the institution of the sacraments and the, the sort of cradle to grave uh, um, arc uh, uh, that, of the protection of the church, the cultural and, 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 and spiritual protection of the church? How, how is grace communicated? And then, of course, that perennial ongoing relate, what is faith and reason? How much does my rational, natural self bring to this question of my faith? And how much does my faith have to correct my rational, natural self, right? Once again, we don't outrun it. You know, we, we're certainly not in the Middle Ages anymore. We'd be thankful in some ways. Uh, and we, because we never have plagues anymore, right? And, it, thank you. Uh, and we, uh, we, we, we dress a little, we have air conditioning inside. But we, uh, we don't outrun this. We don't outrun this. Um, these questions then still um, chase us, so to speak, um, in, in the, the way we form our theology and the way we talk about our faith. Okay. Then we looked at the Reformation Church one Sunday uh, a few weeks ago. And here we see it, a little more familiarity for the Advent. Advent sees itself in the Reformational tradition of Anglicanism. And it's held to that as, a, as its theological center. Out of the Reformation, we get three expressions. We meant the Catholic Church remains, the Council of Trent. Every Christian should be aware that not much has changed since the Council of Trent in terms of the doctrine of the Catholic Church. We get the Protestant confessional churches. What are the Protestant confessional churches? I'll say more in a minute. But these are the great uh, statements of faith that came out of Lutheranism and Augsburg, Anglicanism and the 39 Articles. Presbyterianism and the Westminster Confession of Faith. An attempt to, to say what we believe as protesters, as dissent, dissenters from the Catholic uh, um, theology. And then, of course, we talked about the Radical Reformation, or the more, the more extreme forms of Anabaptist thought that uh, emerged, that were against both Catholicism and the Reformational Confessions. <laughs> We got to get back to the Bible. We got to get back to being like the apostles. We can jump through history, so to speak, and start over. Very modern idea, of course. And again, you, you, the, the theme starts to repeat, doesn't it? What is spiritual authority? How is grace communicated to the believer? The institution versus institutional practices that are seemingly contrary to God's word, to the Bible. How do we hold those in tension? In, in tension with each other. The things that are not necessary or that aren't explicitly explained to us through Scripture. And then probably the cornerstone of Reformation thought, that grace is imputed to the believer through faith rather than infused by sacramental ritual. This is a 
I would say if you're a Christian, we need to know this. That whichever one you believe, you need to know this is part of church history. Uh, and of course, Protestantism holds to the impu- imputation through faith that it's not just ex opere operato. It doesn't just happen because it happens. The two aren't mutually exclusive, are they? What's that, Charles? Imputed grace and infused not, grace through sacramental there, it, it, it's all a question of emphasis, right? Yeah. Uh, it, that's right. And how so, one views it. That's right. And and within those confessional systems, they disagree. Lutheranism from Calvinism, still with us today, right? Left off. Left off with the modern church. And this is where I want to pick up and spend just a couple of minutes before I turn us to the 21st century. Because to talk about the 21st century is to talk about this stuff. Okay is to talk about the modern church and how it develops. So some of you will recall that the, the way I diagrammed it out here is that in the 18th and 19th centuries, those confessional churches, Lutherans, Presbyterians, the Calvinist Reformed churches, the Anglican church, those confessional churches broke over time into two big camps, two big camps. One is evangelicalism, okay? Evangelicalism is not a denomination. It's a, it's, a, it's a pattern. It's a set of characteristics. It's a trend, if you will, a movement more than it is a doctrine, okay? And our, uh, we can see roots of this in the Wesleys or in Edwards, Jonathan Edwards, and this desire to break out of what they call the old sort of ritualisms and confessionals systems of Christianity, and to take it to the people. And a lot of, a lot of factors were influencing this, new ideas about human psychology and, and such. The other is equally a trend, a set of attributes, liberal Protestant. Liberal Protestantism is not a denomination. It's a tendency. It's a set of patterns. And these two begin to emerge out of the confessional systems of the modern church. Little, a little more on each of these before I turn to the issue of the 21st century, because I don't think we get there without these guys, okay? Um, I, I reviewed the, uh, just a quick review that confessional Protestantism, Protestantism it tries to make statements of belief that you, we, they're creeds that we assent to. They're not the Bible. They're the map to the Bible. They're the, oh, I don't know what this is. What does the, what do the article say kind of thing? Or I'm not understanding this. What do the creeds teach us about this? They have disagreements between them, but they also are trying to hold to a kind of objective reality to what we believe. What do you believe? Uh, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Uh, you know, it's, a, it's a rehearsal of those things. Evangelicalism, as it begins to move away from that, it tends to go toward the personal, the born-again experience. The isolation of the Bible alone, right? Apart from history, tradition, and confessions tends toward non-denominationalism, right? We don't need to have an expressive 
statement of faith. Or if you go online sometimes and search, you'll see a lot of churches just come up with their own statements of faith. So you have to click, what do we believe? And it's like, oh, well, look, they, it looks very similar to what other people have believed. I don't know why you had to restate it, but you did. And then you've got the uh, uh, history of activism and social reform and history of revivalism. Evangelicalism tends to lean toward a democratization of Christianity. That democratic impulse, that, that populist impulse is in the evangelical spirit. Political and cultural issues take, can, can, these are tendencies, uh, I'm not trying to say it's definite, definite. They tend to take priority over older theological practices. The me and my Bible thing I mentioned a minute ago, and then uh, leadership tendencies can sometimes manifest in the cult of personality. Um, what about liberal Protestantism? All right. Because again, I'm trying to get us to the 21st century. I'm trying to get us to right now. And yeah, liberal Protestantism. Theology and scriptural authority can be amended according to the rules of reason and science. You can study the Bible as a cultural artifact just like anything else. Uh, it can, we, we can find uh, things in the Bible. What's the essence of it so we don't have to worry about the messiness of it? You know, uh, the subjective and experiential can be more reliable than the objective and historical. You kind of see an overlap there with the evangelicalism, right? They, again, evangelicals believe in a kind of objective authority, but they, it's, the, it's the subjective that tends to govern the conversation. Well, liberalism has that tendency as well. You don't have to worry about whether it was objectively true. What's important is that it becomes true to your own conscience. And then the, the teachings can uh, turn, uh, they, they can be uh, um, the ethical teaching, ethics, behavior. Uh, how, how do we, uh, what's the moral lesson out of Christianity? And what are some of the results of this shift? Um, it's, a, it's a rejection or it's a substantial modification of the supernatural. And that has consequences for how we understand authority. The authority of the scriptures, particularly. It tends to reduce the diff... I just said this, so we'll move on. But it tends to reduce the difficult stuff uh, to cultural and historical conditions. Oh, they believed in miracles then. The same way they might have believed in dragons. You know, a kind of Middle Earth kind of weirdness. But we don't... We're past that now. It's, a, it's a, what we call in, in academic the hard historicism. It tends to teach Christianity and ethics as personal fulfillment. Love and tolerance become the highest Christian ideals. And that the, the, whole, the, the body of concerns about human nature, God, the need for salvation, start being pushed more and more into questions of justice and peace through politics. How can the political and social world manifest these things? To, to us. So um, I left off, this is where we left off with uh, what we see today, the 21st century. Let's just start now. What is the 21st century then? In the 21st century, I'm, I'm suggesting that these two expressions, evangelicalism and Protestantism, are the leading trends of post-Reformation Christianity in the United States. 
And so I am isolating this to a particular corner of the world at the moment. If you go global, I would say evangelicalism and Catholicism are probably more influential. That's what I'm trying to distinguish there. Though they're different, we do have overlap, and increasingly so. We increasingly see uh, weird sort of strange Venn graphs or overlap, cir- overlapping circles between evangelicalism and liberal Protestantism. How does my faith meet my psychological, cultural, or political need? And again, I do distinguish them in the way they understand authority and belief. I'm not suggesting they're the same, but in the 21st century and in the last 40 years, we're seeing more and more uh, connections between the two. Christianity now, and this is to this very hour, it operates in a democratized marketplace. We vote. We vote with our feet. Uh, We see people at church for years, and then they go away, and they didn't die. Where did they go? They went down the street to another church. People vote uh, by choosing. We have choice, and we have freedom. And so the democratic and populist impulse has affected the way we practice faith. And then I ask one question for the 21st century. is, Is confessional Protestantism on the ropes? Is it over, or is it a possible recovery? So where are we? What, what do we say about all this history? That's a lot in 15 minutes, 20 minutes, I know. And it's a lifetime of, of work to sort it out, but hopefully those are the essentials you can take away. Where are we? I'm going to suggest this morning that American Christianity, all right? I'm not talking about and maybe Western Christianity more broadly considered but particularly us. I'm distinguishing this from the global south, Africa, and the east, okay? Is surrounded by a collection of ideas that are shaping and not only who we, how we think and how we respond, but also how our children and the next generation will have to think and respond as well. And those three areas are romanticism, rationalism, and ideology. I'm going to break them down for us. Um, what am I trying to do here? What I'm, what I'm trying to do is say, if we look at the early church, medieval church, and reformation church, they all had certain pressures and, and cultural and philosophical questions and issues pressing on them that gave shape to the conversation that came out of these worlds. We do too. We do too. And that's the great thing of studying history is we don't get out of it. We inherit all of that, but then there's this. Romanticism. Now, this is when I teach undergraduates, I have to be, you know, I have to be real careful. When I'm talking Hallmark cards and Valentine's Day and kisses and chocolate and all that, we're talking, we're talking a, a movement of thought and, uh, that, of the modern world that emphasizes subjectivity feelings, freedom, and individualism. That's what I mean by romanticism. We swim in this as a culture, all right? Rationalism. Rationalism emphasizes reason, scientific authority, and skepticism. This, too, has been 
a very uh, deep uh, channel cut into the Western world in terms of how we think about reality. Show me, prove it, right? I don't believe you. <laughs> and you may, if you're really paying attention, say, well, don't those things kind of contradict each other? Yes. We'll just leave it there, which means it's one of the issues we're dealing with in the West <laughs> as a church. And then finally, ideology. Ideology, I'll say more in a moment, it emphasizes power structures, systems, interest, and theory. When you bring these things, well, I'll say more about ideology, but when you bring these things, three things together, I think this is what separates us at the moment from what's come before, is that it's a coalition of these tendencies that has given shape to a kind of American consciousness that even as Christians we have to navigate. The same way the early church had to navigate Judaism and philosophy in the Middle Ages, faith and reason. This is our, this is our struggle in theology right now. And how, let me be clear, how theology is being shaped and how our faith is being tested, and who we're going to be as a church. Not the Advent, but including the Advent, but the church. Yes, sir. Could we not take those three, those three ideas and surround them with, Western, with 21st century Christianity to create a Venn diagram where each subject can contribute to yes. the whole Certainly. in varying degrees? Yes, <laughs> certainly. You could take and maneuver it in a number of directions to get the mental conception. I, I agree with you. I did a triangle, so I, I'm, now I'm feeling insecure about my triangle. But <laughs> <laughs> Ideology. I'm going to try to make this simple, as simple as I can. By the way, I do want to say one more thing. These things in and of themselves aren't bad, wicked, or evil. <laughs> I want to be clear about that. There's nothing, there's nothing that you turn and look at these things and say, oh, you're a romantic, I'm so sorry, or oh, a rationalist. We all have these tendencies, and ideology can be a tool as well. I, I, I want, but it's how they, how they combine that matters. How they combine that matters. There are two figures I want to emphasize for today to talk about where we have to wrestle in this this time. One is Karl Marx. You can read the quotes there. I think Karl Marx epitomizes the turn toward ideology. Okay? And I also want to probably, as we move forward, we have to qualify something. Ideology, it's... One way I, I try to explain this to students, it, it's the religious impulse without religion. It's the, the need for faith and hope without transcendence. There's no vertical. It's all horizontal for the ideologist. Okay? Karl Marx exemplifies this. He's brilliant. He offers tremendous insight. I, I, he's brilliant and he's not. I mean, I, I, I get tired of saying he's brilliant. He, he's, he's insightful. <laughs> Let me put it that way. 
But he also proposes a way of, of uh, an idea about power and oppression that has come to dominate the idea of hope in the modern world. And that is history is all oppression and liberation. This is instrumentally different than what Christianity teaches. Because Christianity agrees and disagrees at the same time. The oppression is human nature and sin. It is an ontological problem, not a political or social or economic problem. The second figure is Sigmund Freud. Okay, and you can read his quotes about religion as illusion. Why did I pick these two? Well, one, they're low-hanging fruit. <laughs> but two, uh, it's the idea of the unconscious, that we don't know our true selves, all right? That we are alienated. Both of these ideas teach alienation from our true selves, our true reality. Those are examples of how ideology can be manufactured and changed the way we talk about ourselves and talk about our culture. And they have had a tremendous influence on the West as they've come together and, and surrounded um, our ideas, uh, our institutions, our ideas, our educational structures. If you take these two guys, if you take Marx and Freud, and then I'm, we're skipping a lot of figures by necessity and sort of the generation, how, how these ideas are generated, I would sum it up this way. As Christians, this is kind of a world we're living in. The Marxist paradigm of oppression and liberation has combined with Freud's psychology of repressed unconsciousness, or I don't really know who I am, and it's resulted in three major issues that are not just outside of the church, but they're right in the heart of it as well, because people make up the church. These aren't just things happening in universities like I work in, or you know, bureaucracies, educational systems, uh, pop culture. 21st century is facing three, we could call them crises, we could call them trends or what, however we want to phrase it. We don't have to be alarmist, but these are the issues. One, it's a denial of a stable human nature. All the time periods we looked up until this point held to a stable version of human nature. I need to find that. that there is such a thing as a person and a person can be identified and separated from other things in the natural order. You have reason. You have a soul, maybe. I mean, I would say you do, but at minimum you have reason. You have a soul. You have consciousness. You can think. Human, you're a man. You're a woman. We reproduce certain ways. We live in a world that is now in denial of this. Part of an, an, an additional aspect of that is identity as a social has emerged as both a, a social construct and a personal private choice. What, what, what am I saying? I'm saying that we used to talk, identity is, is something that has emerged out of the spirit of romanticism. 
But when we used to talk about identity, we talked about it as it was tied to nature. My identity is this because I was born a man, a woman, or I was born under these conditions and such. Our identities was tied to a kind of outworking of a natural circumstance. The social and the, the interior, the private, has come to push back against that. And then finally, we're witnessing the triumph of the personal as political, which I would tie back to that, democratiz that democratizing impulse, that populist impulse. These three conditions have changed the, where we live in the 21st century. Can you explain the third one a little bit more? Yeah. The, 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 the personal as political, what I'm, well, let me, let me try, Victor. That what's happened is the idea of identity as politics has entered into our, our, our practices. So politics is no longer something that navigates between differences. Instead, it, it embraces differences such that they play against each other. So what I mean by the personal is political is our interests now are not necessarily tied to old. They still are, but our interests have been expanded beyond older issues like my economic situation. Or, uh, you know, our interests now are being tied more to because I am this way, I have a demand on my environment that has to be met. That's what I mean. What I don't want to lose sight of here, I'm not here to talk about any policies. I'll say, what I want to say is the church is living with this. That's what I'm trying to say. That if we're going to get up to speed on where we are in the 21st century, this is it. We are surrounded by very, um, we're fortunate. <laughs> we're fortunate to be in, with, with the kind of church we have and the kind of conversations we are familiar with day in and day out. But increasingly, that conversation's changing. And it's changing. It, I, I'm going to go a step further and say it has changed. <laughs> we, we are in a different situation than our ancestors were. And the way, there's a Venn graph. <laughs> Identity, the personal, the demand we have on the political is also translating into the demand we're putting on our churches and the kind of church we want. In other words, we're not outrunning this, nor are we, nor are we preparing, perhaps, as well as we should. And I'm not, I hesitate because I'm not sure what I mean when I say that myself. I, I'm so out of these three things, if you if you want to say where are we in the twenty first century, Wallace, here's where we are. I think we are in a unique moment in this in these three categories that other areas of church history, epics of church history have not had to to deal with. And I think this has profound consequences for how we proceed in our theological training our recruitment of ministers, what we expect from the pulpit, what we expect 
and the limits of tolerance, the elasticity of tolerance within the communions that we participate in. Um, liberal Protestantism is there. Evangelicalism is on the fence right now in what we're going to do with these three categories and how we're going to move forward. Now here's where I'll start wrapping up. What is our moment? What's our moment? 2022, traditional biblical and historical claims of Christian theology are being adapted to the demands of identity and ideology. That's what's happening. The church, the church must articulate a coherent vision of human nature and human need under increasingly antagonistic political and cultural pressures. I, I used to tell my students when I started teaching at the turn of the century back 2000-2001 I would say coming out of the 20th century the greatest struggle was the economic and political ideologies of, of the West you know Marxism capitalism freedom authoritarianism those are real and, but the greatest struggle I would say today you're going to face as a young person in the 21st century is what is a human being We've never been here before. We've always assumed that a human being is a given, a fact. That assumption is no longer reliable. When I say it's not only reliable, it's not reliable within certain institutional forms that, such as we live in. I'm not saying it's not there. <laughs> it is reliable. <laughs> Finally, Christians must be prepared to suffer consequences for their conviction that Christianity is not adaptable to modern expressions of romanticism, rationalism, or ideology. We don't get a pass. We don't have a, a pass that our forefathers and mothers had in the early church, in the medieval church, in the Reformation church. This is our moment. <laughs> we have to be prepared to engage this conversation for the sake of ourselves our children, evangelism, the gospel, however you want to phrase it. I take off my history lesson thing here for a moment just to say we obviously have hope. <laughs> None of these, are, I don't have the big hope slide. I, I, I came in thinking, you know, what is my one biblical passage I put up here to make every... I, I, I just say that our hope is the truth. It is that, that the truth has broken into history it is broken into our hard hearts it is it is it is there it is more powerful than anything i've put up here it is more powerful than any ideology or any current moment we're living in and the truth is that that uh, god has god has acted in the world on behalf of a real human nature that has fallen and has an eternal aspect to it our, we will live forever according to the, the hope that was given us in the cross and the resurrection. And that is the hope, is that that nature can be transformed. So that's my wrap-up of where I think we are in the 21st century. Any We have time for conversation or, or questions. Yes, sir. I just want to say that, um, I deal with this professionally all the time, and 
you know, scripture has to be the ultimate authority on whatever concept you're talking about. The, 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 I did, you know, just for the sake of time, I didn't put it up here, but this is another thing. It's, the question is authority. It, it really keeps pushing us back to what are the limits of how we can define that, and we have to submit to it. And modern ears don't like that. <laughs> yes, sir. Yeah, it's, it's a matter of the absolute authority in the world or not. And so Christianity, we're not supposed to ram it down anybody's throat, but this is what we believe. And Peter says that humility and fear of God here present the gospel well. Yes. I'm sure they did that, but all, all but one of them is martyred because people don't like what they're saying. So it's, it's that easier... Yeah. Authority or not. All these other people and we have. I appreciate you mentioning Peter. I mean, we have models. We have examples. We we're not left alone. <laughs> we can turn back to that. And the Romantics tend to be more individual. And, Absolutely. And about yeah. the person. Yes, ma'am. So, in the way, just being reminded how Paul spoke to this in Scripture when he was dealing with the Hellenistics and yeah. all of that. Absolutely. And and there are all these ideologies and theologies going on, but instead of taking those apart, you put forth Christ. And instead that is our power. That is the power that a Christian has. We don't have to do the heavy lifting. It's been done. And I appreciate that very much. And, and that when you're surrounded by this and look at all, it, it, and especially looking at the field I'm in, education, you watch the news at night, the children, it's terrifying. But he is risen. <laughs> yes, Victor. You know, C.S. Lewis, Malcolm Muggeridge, they talk in terms, Muggeridge in particular, you know, when you take away the transcendent, you really end up with only two things. And the Muggeridge called it the fist or the phallus. The fist or the phallus, yeah. exactly. Lewis talked more about um, power. And that's exactly right. Us, but it's, you just have appetite and power. Ideology. And that's what, yeah. that becomes the overriding. It, it's a tr- that Muggeridge from 1983, I believe, is when he wrote it. And we've talked about that article before. It's a, it's a, you're, you're left with brute force and erotic, erotic sexualism is all the culture's left with. Which, I hate to say it, but hello, hello, hello. <laughs> I mean, they got it. They understood that. Yes, ma'am. I'm sorry, I'm trying to get it. Yes, sir. <laughs> and yes, ma'am. Well, authority obviously has to be substantiated. Yes. And Jesus yeah. said yeah. to John the Baptist's disciples, you can't believe in me, believe in the works that I have done. Very good. There are 279 million Pentecostals worldwide. One in four Christians is Pentecostal. That doesn't, so you can't isolate the yep. United States out from the rest of the world. Yep. Well, we're still hanging up in this stuff where the yep. rest of the world is moving on with the Spirit actually accomplishing and manifesting themselves. The, the, the global movement, I, I did for the sake of time not talk about, I would, maybe that's another lesson another time, but the global movement, there are two things I would say about the global movement. One, exactly what you just said. We better pay attention to what's happening because something's different. Two, they don't completely escape the Western 
world either because the theological premises came out of certain conditions that they did not go through. So there's a, there is a tension there. Yes. Yeah. I, I was just going to say, maybe I'm thinking about it too simplistically, um, but I guess the way I think about it is that the church is different than the institution of the church. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. you know, what unites the capital C church yeah. is the actual creeds, yeah, um, the sure. gospel. And if we don't share the creeds and historic creeds of the gospel, I'm not really sure yeah. we're actually in the same church. Yeah, no. And we may yeah. be in a, it, it's possible that, that the institution of the church is in deep challenges, but that's not necessarily the same thing as the church. No, that, and of course the scriptures are full of, are, you know, the the idea that just because you show up doesn't mean <laughs> you're you're, right. you're there. And, and there may be points of yeah. where yeah. Our, our loyalty has to be to the church versus the institution. One of the things that is not developed here, but I think is worth revisiting multiple times, is what is the what is the future of confessional and creedal Christianity? It, it's been marginalized. It's been kind of put in a corner. Some of its own doing, a lot of it, but. Is there a place to recover that? And what is a responsible recovery of confessional Christian Catechism, bringing people into a confessional system that we know is not Scripture, but gives us, gives us a kind of security when we deal with Scripture. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. 